Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Steve Oren, who is the Federal Chief Technology Officer and Senior PE, which I believe is Principal Engineer for the Intel Corporation. Steve orchestrates and executes customer engagements in the federal space, overseeing the development of federal solution architectures to address challenges in the government, enterprise, national security, and other federal areas of focus. Steve has been in the IT space for many years, has a lot of different uh, specializations, and we're going to talk to Steve about specifically what Intel does in the federal space and then just kind of uh, talk about current events and so on. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today, Mark. It's my pleasure. I, I looked at your LinkedIn profile, and, and it seems that you reside in a place called Vienna. That is correct, Vienna, Virginia, which is about uh, 11 miles outside of D.C. Okay, it makes sense given, given the space that you're in, but I didn't know we had a Vienna in the U.S. <laughs> any any story to how it got its name? So actually, it's it was named uh, for Vienna, but it's one of the older cities in the area. Obviously, Virginia is a uh, one of the original colonies. And it was uh, one of its interesting uh, tidbits. It was one of the first free areas uh, post-Civil War. Um, and so it has a long history of, of supporting the African-American community as one of the first free cities that was designated post-Civil War. Well, that that's amazing. Um, we have, and I'm sure it's not related at all, but we have um, a city, a small little town out here called Leavenworth. And it's kind of a barbarian village themed place. And it's, I, I don't know when it originally started, but it, it's been there since at least like the 50s. Um, do you have any kind of architecture or anything like that in, in Vienna that uh, resembles Viennese architecture or? Not at all. Not at all. Not Very at all. Uh, colonial Virginian uh, style architectures here. <laughs> okay. Well, that's still pretty, pretty impressive stuff. Well, hey, Steve, um, I got to ask you I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're federal chief technology officer. And, um, and and senior uh, principal engineer in the you know and you work in the federal space. Are there any major differences between working in the federal space and serving the federal government versus uh, working with private enterprise in the context of delivering security solutions? So it's a really good question. Um, and I think it comes the, the way to think about it is in a couple of different areas. Um, on the one hand, uh, oftentimes as dealing with the federal government, there's an extra level of complexity around contracting and how money is appropriated to purchase or develop uh, systems and solutions. Uh, it's typically in the uh, in the uh, commercial space, you have fairly short sales of times and lead times as far as going from initial customer contact to acquisition, whereas government has a much longer sales cycle. On the flip side, the two of the really two interesting things that I've always uh, enjoyed working with the federal government, well, actually three things. One is the scale, mm -hmm. um, the, the, just the sheer size of the problem, of the number of users, the number of systems, of the, uh, you know, in the case of cybersecurity, the size of the threat and the amount of systems that you have to protect. So it, it is a bigger problem than you'd find in individual corporations on the private sector side. Um, the other really interesting thing, um, having done my started my career in the startup space, uh, developing products and technologies, is the the federal government is a macro uh, of every use case. So you think about when you're looking at various different vertical markets: financial services, healthcare, uh, manufacturing, retail. The federal government has it all. If you want to talk finance, you can talk IRS, or you could talk to the uh, 
the Medicaid, Medicare parts of, of HHS, they're dealing with financial, uh, the same kind of financial transactions and financial data that you would at a bank. When you talk about healthcare, the VA is the largest insurer and provider of healthcare um, in, in America and really in some cases in the world because of the sheer scope of what it, it has to service. And then of course you look at things like, you know, citizen services and the kind of data sets. And so it really does have every possible vertical all in one place. So it makes it a very exciting area where there's always interesting, unique challenges across multiple vertical domains. And then lastly, it's the mission. Um, you know, as much as I want to make sure that, you know, all the banks and the healthcare organizations are protected and able to scale their organizations, at the end of the day, that, you know, the, our U.S. government is serving us uh, and serving our country. And by helping them, we're helping the, you know, the common uh, the common good and helping the citizens and really helping to affect the mission, whether that be saving actual lives um, to basic, you know, making sure people's tax returns happen faster, to making sure that the the vets get the right services. Any, you know, the things we do matter, and I think that's what makes it exciting. And then there's a calling to that to help. Um, even when you're in the IT space, you're actually seeing the effect of what you're doing. Awesome. Hey, uh, you know, it, I, I'm wondering because, like, I, I've dealt mostly with with private enterprise. I've I've been involved in a couple different government contracts as well, and. Mm. I'm wondering, you know, the incentives tend to be a little bit different. In private enterprise, the incentive is obviously um, turn a profit, okay? Um, and if you get really deep into it, you know, you look at, listen to somebody like Drucker, it'll be like, oh, no, the, the purpose of every business is to get a customer. But I, at the end of the day, it's all profit-driven, okay? Um, in the federal government, though, you know, some of the agencies aren't necessarily held – they're not measured on their profitability, okay? In fact, some of them are just continually, you know, perennial money losers, but they provide really valuable services. So when when you remove the profit motive, I'm wondering, does the decision-making process, does it change at all? So I think there's an, it's a very interesting question to look at uh, because there's sort of two sides to that coin. On the one hand, when you don't have the profit motive, um, you, oftentimes you can get better decision making because it's not driven by the bottom line all the time. Yet at the same time, there is a bottom line there. It's not, you know, you're not trying to turn a profit, but you have an allocated budget uh, that's, you know, dictated by Congress and you've got, you, you, that's all you get to spend. And so in some respects, they're held to the sort of same barrier and therefore need to be able to deliver on time and with, um, uh, within the budget, um, and they'll go for the lowest cost solution because they've got to stretch that budget. They can't go back to a VC to get more money or increase right. their uh, their revenue by selling more product. They get the allocation they get, and that's it for the year until the next you know continuing resolution or budget approval uh, that comes along. Um, and so it it is a different uh, set of criteria, but they have a lot of the same challenges. The flip side, um, on the positive side of that, is that that they're not beholden to just the bottom line. You know, when they're going, whether it be building a, a new, you know, a new airplane for the for the Air Force or uh, designing a, bet, a better system for delivering data through the the GSA, their 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 mission is what comes first. It's executing on that mission, and so profit doesn't come into the story. That's a sort of secondary of how do we afford to make it happen. But they're definitely driven by the requirements of what they're trying to uh, execute on. And so it is a, a very different conversation when you're looking at it from what can I do with the budget I have to solve the problem versus, okay, I've got X amount of budget, I'm gonna peanut butter in a couple of places until, we, you know, until the revenue is, is better and then we can do better. So it does lead to a much more mission-oriented approach to how they deliver solutions. 
makes makes a lot of sense. I, I'm curious, because I mean, you, you must deal with um, a large number of different agencies. Do you find that uh, the response in terms of current cyber threats varies based upon uh, the agency? So I think like you would find in in, uh, in any other vertical market, there's sort of the haves and the have nots. Uh, you know, if you go to the, you know, into the you know, financial institutions, you have the very large banks have very large teams, large IT and cybersecurity budgets, and are also the, the main target. So they see a lot more. Whereas you talk about small, small, you know, regional banks, credit, uh, uh, credit unions, things like that, they obviously have much smaller teams, they don't have the same capability uh, and depth in their workforce to be able to address every kind of threat. And you see the same thing in the federal government, you know, the DOD is the big dog. They have the teams, they have the money, and they have the threat that they're dealing with, where if you go to smaller civilian agencies, they're often very small organizations, and in many cases have to outsource a lot of their IT uh, security to either managed service providers or to other other parties or contractors. And so you have the same kind of th um, have and have not. There are two key differences. Again, the, it doesn't matter if you're the International Trade Commission or the National Security Agency, you are a target because you're part of the federal government. And right. So you do have a you know it's a big target on them, regardless of how big or small the the agency is, and at least for the civilian agencies and also for the DoD on, in a separate division, there are agencies whose job it is to help provide security for them. So it's not up to the you know International Trade Commission or GAO or uh, or the Department of Veteran Affairs to do it all by themselves. DHS for the civilian agencies is tasked with helping provide the network and operational security. And, and threat monitoring for the civilian agencies and the law enforcement arms necessary to help prosecute. And of course, DOD has multiple different uh, divisions and services that are in the cyber domain from protection to defending um, to network management. You know, so inside the DOD, there's DISA, Defense Intelligence, uh, the Defense uh, Information Security Agency. And then you, of course, have Cyber Command. And both of those work in coordination to protect the core infrastructure and the, and the data um, as well as the uh, the systems and platforms globally for the DoD. And so you have dedicated agencies that you don't get that kind of benefit out in the uh, private sector. What what does Intel do differently or what does it provide that's different to the federal government versus uh, private enterprise? Very interesting question, because at the end of the day, Intel is in the business developing and and producing commercial products that we sell to the broader industry you know, worldwide. The way we we uh, go after the government um, is really in two areas, um, and it's different from a lot of the other uh, providers. You know, the, what they call the defense industrial base, where you know, whether you take like a Lockheed or a Northrop, whose job is to sell capabilities and services and products to the federal government, you know, almost exclusively, or even other uh, uh, commercial entities. You know, the the OEMs or the CSPs that develop federal focused solutions specifically for the government. Intel looks at the federal government in a more of a strategic way. What are engagements we can have with the federal government that are strategically important to both the government and to Intel, whether it be um, as a vanguard of technology, so building out technology today that the federal government wants for its requirements because of the scale or scope or threat that they're dealing with, that is going to have a commercial viability down the road. And so looking at them to sort of to help do the early stages, the early piloting, the early prototyping on something that we see commercial needing later um, and advancing technologies along those ways to be taking commercial products and customizing them together to understand how the end customer would use various ingredient products. And so we build 
technology architectures and solution, whether it be in the area of AI and 5G to supercomputers with government requirements, but they're always tied back to what's the commercial viability, commercial capabilities to be able to deliver it at a global scale. Um, because you know, we've seen this you know, over my career, I've seen this many, many times, a requirement today in the federal space will be a requirement in the financial services and regulated industries in a few years, and then it will be for everyone else a couple of years after. So the government does often have the uh, requirements first, especially in the cybersecurity realm, but we also see it in the scale realm. Um, they have the largest of data sets, the largest of networks. And so if you can solve it for them, you can solve it for the private sector. Yeah, I think that's kind of an often overlooked, I guess, benefit of the federal government is it it serves as this incubation ground and and massive area for deployment to help companies, one, commit to actually developing the technology that's needed. Because if there's no market, private companies are going to be like, well, where's the upside? You know, you're telling us we need this technology, but where's the market? And federal government says we're going to buy your chips or we're going to buy, buy your tools or we're, it could even buy we're going to buy your electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. If we're going to be the, you know, your, your first market and then you're going to, you know, so that kind of gives you that guarantee uh, it allows companies to go ahead and invest in those key technologies. And I, I, I think that oftentimes people, um, well, maybe I'm just reflecting on my own thought patterns, but we, we, we overlook that benefit of the government and how the government can be strategically used. I know that, um, and this is not related to cybersecurity, well, it's, it's related to national security, a big part of the, um, the, the plans to deploy or develop renewable energies technologies is to get the federal government to commit to being a consumer of those, of those uh, services. So it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you, I mean, because, you know, you, you cover a lot of different areas. Um, which which technologies um, are most exciting? And, and conversely, which threats are most concerning for you? So, Mark, we could spend an entire day on the, on some of those uh, topics. But let's, let's talk about one of the ones that I think everyone is seeing right now. Um, AI is a game changer. Um, it, it is changing the way we, you know, it's all in the news and everyone's talking about whether it be chat GPT or autonomous vehicles or, you know, the new robots and also, and the, the technology is starting to, you know, pervade, you know, get pervasive across all aspects of daily life. And what we're seeing is as we move beyond the hype and start looking at where it's actually making a difference, whether that be in processing this sheer volumes of data and being able to get better intelligence, better um, information out of data, to of operational efficiencies. There's some great studies and the Air Force published one a number of years ago about using AI machine learning, not to you know, solve some big data problem, but to just get operational efficiencies into their contracting and acquisitions process. So looking internally on the process of buying things and how can they reduce uh, you know, duplication, get better efficiency, better uh, make the process more straightforward, and in some cases, so, you know, sounds like you've been through that process a few times. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the, the last time I went through the process, uh, I, I, it was funny because if you if you're not if you don't have a you know a dedicated team that knows all the ins and outs, and I forget the huge pr uh, procurement platform where if you're going to do, do uh, business with the, this was happened to be with the DoD, you have to you know you create an account and you have to add all this information. I. It was so torturous, and I remember uh, talking to one of my colleagues, and I because it, it, I was like, "How can we possibly send our military overseas and invade?" You know, I just don't know how we can sustain it because this is just not working. But at the end of the day, it all came together. So, 
Sorry exactly. to cut you off. Go, go ahead. Please. No worries. And so we're seeing AI really being one of the exciting areas um, of, of technology that's still evolving, and we're still seeing great innovations there. And so I think that's that's one of the exciting areas. And then the other, you know, so, and it's, it is a buzzword on the technology front. You know, everyone's talking 5G, and everyone's, I think, a lot of uh, commercial industries thinking about it from the phone and the public uh, access of 5G. But really, when you think about what it unlocks, whether it be private, public, or a combination thereof, it's the ability to deploy diverse, heterogeneous, distributed edge nodes. And what's at the heart of that? That means your sensors, your your vehicles, your platforms, your compute, and even the you know individual, whether it be a warfighter or a census taker, can be connected real time to a an infrastructure to be able to share data, to be able to get real time intelligence, real time uh, applications access wherever they may be. And so. 5G or the you know, what we're calling advanced communications, because it's more than just the 5G standard. It's Wi-Fi 6, it's the advanced comms, it's software defined radios. All of that working together is unlocking the capability of pushing more capability out to the edge and to be able to help everyone from, again, in the federal government space, obviously warfighters and uh, you know the individual uh, workers within the government, but it's every industry, whether it be remote health, whether it be in the case of, of forestry, being able to have that connectivity reliably with the high data speeds is really changing the game. Um, and so those are two of the key technologies that you know we're seeing uh, become exciting um, as, as they're applied to various different mission and enterprise use cases. Um, I think right now when it comes to security, everyone's talking zero trust. It, it is the buzzword du jour. Um, we have an executive order and a mandate that says the agencies not only have to have a plan for how they're going to achieve zero trust, but they have to start executing on it. So it's not, they can't just have a paper document, they actually have to have an implementation that follows. And so we're seeing a strong push to changing the way um, we look at security. And a lot of folks are, are struggling. And I've talked, I talked to public sector, you know, state, local government, as well as federal. And a lot of them are asking a question of, well, where do I begin? And the reality is, is you don't throw away all the security you've done for the last 50 years. Zero trust is really an evolution. And what we're seeing the successful agencies do is take the work they've done in the past of understanding their assets, of doing that risk management, which is sort of the, the core of what it takes to do security at scale, and applying zero trust principles back into it. And why this is important, it goes to your second question, is you know the, the ever-evolving threat landscape that we're dealing with. And what we're seeing is the 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 you know the stuff that you hear in the news, like the the ransomwares and the the data breaches and the supply chain attacks. Those are you know those are obviously part of the bigger story. But when you look at the actual you know nation state actors or the kinds of threats that are being uh, uh, used against both the federal government and you know private industry uh, globally, the sophistication we're seeing and the types of evasion techniques to to you know get around or hide from your typical antivirus and firewall products the um targeting of individuals and the data that they have access to so not very getting very focused on knowing that this you know these type of individuals have the access to this kind of system so i craft an attack for those environments as opposed to the prior generations of malware, which were sort of scattershot or shotgun approach. Oh, I throw a million of these out there and eventually one of them is going to hit. They're getting very laser focused. And that means we need to change the way we do security and evolve our security to be something that's different. And like the, one of the key tenets of zero trust that I think is exciting is that concept of default deny. 
And basically the idea is, is that even though you're a legitimate user and you've authenticated just this moment, that doesn't mean you automatically get access to everything. And so by taking a default deny approach, it makes you it makes the systems and the people and the or and the networks constantly reevaluate. Are you allowed to access? Is this the right thing for you to be doing at this moment in time with the current threat? And that change is helping to narrow the uh, the window of exposure that uh, these targeted attacks are, are carrying. A couple of follow up questions to that then in terms of timing to deploy zero trust or implement it, what are we looking at for the federal government? And then also, could you, I mean, you know, you say like default deny and zero trust. Uh, can you walk through a kind of use case of, you know, what's what's it going to look like for me, an end user, if I'm in the federal government and, and we've, you know, implemented zero trust? It's a great question. So let's start with the timeline. I think one of the first misconceptions that a lot of people have, and it's important to state, is that there is no binary. I don't buy zero trust, flip the switch and I'm good. It's a process, it's a journey, it's not a destination. And so the key is that, you know, what the mandate said and what was really important about how it was crafted is that you have to start. It doesn't say you have to be finished by a certain date because there is no finish line. It's a constantly evolving approach to how you do security. It's not, well, I, I buy this product and I'm done. And so everyone's got to start. Those, those timeframes are now, uh, you know, the mandate came out last year and they were given you know, 180 days to come up with a plan and start executing a plan. And so everyone is looking at 23 as the implementation execution start point to get, get the ball rolling. Where they begin is gonna be somewhat unique to each organization, uh, whether it be around stronger authentication so that they can do better ver verification of their end users to network uh, uh, segmentation. So not having one big network for everything, but chopping it up into individual subdomains and subnetworks and you know, doing that segmentation that allows you to provide those policy controls between the different domains. So HR should be different from finance, should be different from say, you know, op, you know health text as in, you know, to use a commercial use case. They shouldn't all share the same network uh, from a logical perspective so that you can apply those policies. So let's talk about your questions. A really good one is, you know, what does it feel like from, a, from an end user? Well, if we do this all right, and it's gonna take us time as an industry to get there. So today it's not gonna be as seamless as we want it to be. But the idea is that as an end user, your experience should not be degraded because you're in a zero trust environment, unless you're doing something wonky. If you're gonna go on and access your Teams and your Microsoft Outlook or go to your Google Docs or whatever your normal business activities, they should work the same way. You'll have a strong authentication. It should be, you know, multi-factor. So, you know, whether your password and a, a token or a, a, some sort of uh, app on your phone, a combination of more than one credential to initially authenticate yourself, a lot of the work that validates that and validates the activity is going to happen behind the scenes. But to walk that scenario, you're going to go into your systems, you pull down your, you know, your SharePoint and you're looking at the docs that you've used for the past six months. Everything's great. You, you've authenticated, you've accessed your document. Now you're gonna go look at, you know, in our case, I'm, I'm at Intel. I'm gonna go look at the design specs of the next generation chip. Well, that's an interesting thing in that I've never done that before. At least I haven't done it in six months, let's say. So I'm now doing an access to a, to a data set that I have authenticated, I have access to, but should I have access is really the question the policy system's gonna ask. And so before giving me access to that design spec, they're probably going to present me with a couple of challenges like re-authentication. Mm -hmm. 
There may be also some some additional uh, risk management uh, uh, things that will happen behind the scenes. So a system may check is my you know is my antivirus and security policy patching up to date on my laptop? Am I in the in a location that's compliant with where I should be to perform that action? One really good example of this that we've implemented and we've published papers on is that authentication isn't just about the individual, it's the device, the network, and the geolocation I'm in. And so one great example of that is on my phone, which is managed by Intel, I can access my email, I can access most uh, attachments through a secure container, but I can't access you know, uh, in, any of the documents on the, on the SharePoint. I have to be at on an Intel network on an Intel uh, uh, provided device. And now I'm on my Intel Department of Advice, but I'm going in over VPN from home. So I can access you know, most of the documents on the SharePoint, that kind of thing. But the design specs, I have to be in an Intel office. And I have to be in an Intel office that I'm supposed to be in. Because I've you know, badged in you know, to, the, uh, to the Fairfax uh, office. So my access should be coming from the Fairfax, not from Oregon or not from China. And so having that more rich approach to validating who I am at that moment in time, and then looking at what I'm trying to do, that's happening behind the scenes but those are the kind of questions the systems will ask when I do something that's, you know, sort of asking for uh, elevated privileges or going after a piece of data that isn't within the scope of what I normally do. And those kind of policy controls, decisions, and reevaluations of my authentication is the kind of thing Zero Trust is going to enforce behind the scenes. My experience probably would be that when I go ask it, I'm going to get one of two strands. It's going to say, please authenticate again to verify that I'm really, you know, that I, I want to access this and I really want to do it. And if, you know, in, and then I may be able to view it, I may not be able to download it. I'll be able to mm. view it, but I'll not be able to download. Uh, that's going to be based on policy and the current threat environment. And that could change. If tomorrow I come in and I try to do the same thing legitimately, and I've, I've you know, got, you know, and there's a, a change in the policy because the threat level is different or because my I'm now associated with a different program, that experience could change. I could get easy access to it because now a policy decision has been made. But it's not, it, the change is it's not automatic. Today, you sign into your enterprise, you've got the keys to the kingdom. And that's what fundamentally is shifting, segregating the data, the networks, the applications, and applying real-time policies. And I think the other thing, I mean, we talked about the fault deny, but it's also the continuous part, continuous monitoring, continuous validation, continuous risk management, because the world that we live in doesn't stay static. And then the idea of only checking your security updates every six months to see are, is your policies correct isn't going to fly anymore. And so that continuous monitoring means that if, let's say, there's a we're seeing an increased amount of attack of targeted phishing campaigns coming after Intel from China, they may reduce the you know like reduce the access and spin up the dials on the policy to require multiple authentication steps or, or prevent people from downloading documents um, without you know, a, a two-step process to help reduce the, the threat at that moment in time. Zero trust is what the architecture that enables that kind of next-gen approach to risk management. Yeah, I mean, but a lot of that anomalous behavior detection and behavior analytics has been around for a while. Mm -hmm. um, I. I, I but what I'm hearing you say is that in addition to that, they're communicating with kind of uh, threat awareness, threat detection, uh, and, and it's just going to be all that much more powerful. They're getting more signal from more areas, and the the ability uh, to detect this anomalous behavior is being increased, probably because of the use of AI as well. Um, and so it's just becoming much more powerful, much more pervasive. Um, and then... <laughs> <laughs> on a humorous note that uh, 
the what would you call it uh, disallowing somebody to download what's the technical word for that for, for the, the not, you know it's a, the den denying the download deny the download can we just like regardless of what party they're in can we just whoever's in the white house can we just can we just enforce that <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I just, I just imagine, you know, I, I, I think about how many, how few documents I actually print these days. And, and then some people that we all know who have time to, or have their, uh, you know, uh, colleagues download or print crates and crates of these documents and then, <laughs> and then move them around. Deny download, man. Exact <laughs> problem, problem solved. Yeah. So, and and hey, one of the key things that that links those two also the like you said the analytics has has been around the the better threat intelligence it's the connection to policy we've seen time and again you hear about a data breach or attack and you know they go back and do the forensics and say well yeah the sensors picked it up there was the blinking light if you will on the dashboard but you know it took two two weeks for the for the analyst to see it that's the problem is that we're relying on humans in the loop often to find some little blinking light that doesn't tell us that's really a vulnerability, just says something's weird here, as opposed to pushing that to an automated policy enforcement. So you're saying, I don't know that there's an actual threat because it's a blinking light, but being seeing those blinking lights, you know, I'm using that, you know, in the proverbial way, could drive a policy decision to provide stronger controls in real time, as opposed to waiting for someone to come back and later and flip a switch and turn on a firewall, firewall rule. That's the game changer in zero trust is moving to that automated versus, you know, sort of static manual approach. Totally makes sense. And whenever possible, automate, agree with you on that. Uh, policies are super important, get the right ones in place from the beginning. Uh, I got to ask, you know, as the, the government moves towards zero trust and, and you know we already talked about the size and scale and and you know sometimes the which pre presents its own set of problems right i mean you got to have you have to kind of get some forward momentum and you get critical mass and, and and you do this but i would imagine that one of the challenges is just getting enough people with real world experience who have done this kind of change uh, well I, you can call it change management or you can just go through this process um, and, and because if you've got a bunch of people saying, yes, we're going to do this, but they don't have the experience, how, how does that happen? So it's it, it's a, big, a big problem, not just for the federal government, but for you know private industry as well. We're all on this journey together towards zero trust. And no one has, you know, as you read the news, no one has the ample cybersecurity workforce they need or the training they need to be able to be 100% effective. Um, but what we've seen in the successful organizations that they don't let that get in the way of starting. Uh, you enable your teams to go off, and you, um, in a lot of cases, it's not trying to solve, you know, or boil the ocean all at once. You pick key areas. So, you know, in one case, you know, some agencies, it's focusing in on better authentication. That's not new. We know how to do multi-factor authentication. We know how to do stronger, uh, you know, sort of context authentication, not just, you know, what you are, who you are, but where you are, what you're connected from. The tools for that exist, and the processes for that part exist. Other agencies are looking at that segmentation so that it's not all one big network, but they break it up into small pieces. And like I said, there are products, technologies, processes, and best practices that have been around for doing network segmentation. And so what we're seeing is that it's not about trying to do zero trust all at once. It's picking the key area to start based on your risk management and start it. And I have to stress this much. It's not analyzing the problem to death. It's figuring out where your most important key areas to start. You know, it may be 10 of them, 
picking a priority, it doesn't have to be 100% right. Because if you get the priority order and you start on number three priority before number one, because that's what you thought was right, you're still working on the top 10 priorities and you start executing. And we're seeing that the, well, both in private industry and, in, you know, you talk to the banks, you talk to the federal government, you see a similar response. We pick these key areas and we're starting on that. We're starting with stronger authentication. We're starting with better risk management and policy connection. We're turning on automation for patch management. Those kind of uh, tactical execution, but all with the, the notion of what does that tie into a, a overarching framework? And that's what Zero Trust is about. It's a framework, not a product. So as you start executing on these individual components, it's a part of a long-term plan and it's coordinated. And so no one's ever gonna have the cyber workforce they need. I mean, everyone is struggling in that space and that's why it's one of the most exciting industries to be in. I've been in it for most of my career and I have to tell you it's recession proof, depression proof. It's, it's, it's just always needed. Um, and what you're finding is that they're targeting the teams that you know, the areas that they have the highest priority and they also have the, the 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 visibility to how to execute against that problem, and they're tackling it. And that's the way that these large agencies and small and private industry are going after zero trust. Is they're starting to you know sort of slice up the problem and take and take off different parts of it. Sounds like a great approach. Hey, let me let me ask you on the uh, your job specific side. I, I I understand typically what a CTO or chief technology officer does. What does a a principal engineer do? So principal engineer, um, really, it's about understanding that, you know, you're delivering capabilities. Um, so you think of the difference between sort of a, a CTO evangelist and a technical CTO. Um, evangelist is really sort of a very technical person that's helping to sell and market technologies. That's what a lot of evangelists do. And some of the CTO evangelists, that's what their job is, is to help government customers or whatever their industry they're in understand the technology. And that is absolutely part of my job is I, I like to say I can translate Intel speak into government speak and government speak back into Intel speak to be that conduit so the government knows how to adopt our technologies and the you know and our business units know how to build to the government requirements. But also being a senior PE, it means I'm driving technology innovations, driving technology capabilities back into the business units and for the government customers. So it's actually helping to develop the next generation architecture or be able to solve, you know, use our technology to solve a next generation threat with the government customer. And so it's it's a more of a, it's, it brings that understanding of the requirements for the mission or for the for the customer, working with the business unit uh, uh, technical and product roadmap planning folks to actually build things and develop capabilities and solutions. And so I, I get to play the best of both worlds. I get some of the most interesting problems and use cases, and then I also, you know try to go solve them and actually provide in you know solutions that get executed into the ecosystem so that whether it be you know the OEMs or the CSPs or the system integrators are taking our technologies and the way we've designed them and the way I've, I've my, myself and my team have delivered them and bringing them to market and so you get the best of both worlds in my opinion that's got to be a pretty cool feeling when you are there at the initial discussion stage where they say hey we've got this problem how can you help this? And you help you know, co-design or design a solution with your team, uh, and 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 go back and present it, and then see it, you know, accepted, and then take it to market, and and then deploy it, um, and you see it out there being used, and you're like, I was there when we it was just a, a concept. I mean, that's that's pretty darn cool. 
It is, it, and it's exciting when you see it scale and when you see standards get written about how it's implemented. It, it is an exciting thing to do, and it's one of the reasons why I, you know I started out my career as a startup guy. I did multiple security startups throughout the 90s and 2000s, um, but I've now been at Intel for almost 18 years. And really, what it comes down to is the scale and impact you can have. Um, when you know when I design something uh, or we execute a solution, it goes to millions of of users. Um, and you know the scale that you have is something you don't find often in a startup environment. Awesome. Hey, um, I got to ask you one more question. I'm, I, are the listeners can't see this, but I, you know, you have your camera on, and I can see that you've got. Uh, I'm looking at maybe a couple hundred books behind you there. Um, what, what kind of books do you read? So I, I have sort of two kinds of books that I, I read. I have um, the ones directly behind me are a lot of them are security. Um, or sort of better understanding how businesses work. So I would say my nonfiction section. So I've got a lot of books for like by Bruce Schneier and Ross Anderson, um, you know, books about hacking, about international threat, interesting reads on, on sort of the, the things that have happened. And then I'm also very much into sci-fi fantasy. So that other bookshelf you're looking at there is uh, all Neil Gaiman um, and, and uh, various uh, things that he's written or things that have been influenced by him. Okay, so give me for the nonfiction and people who are working in the cybersecurity space something that is a must-read. So I think there are two books that are, are are absolutely important, and one is a security book, uh, and the other is uh, a business book. So the security book that one that I, one of the very first ones I read, and even though there have been multiple other books out there that are also good, Applied Cryptography is a great starting point, not just because, you know, and some of the, you know, the, the algorithms they talk about are obviously you know, a little bit dated because it was written back in the 90s. But what it does is it gives you a way of looking at things that is really important to understand that just because you can build a crypto system or build an encryption scheme doesn't mean it's secure. And it, it really teaches you how to look at cryptography in a way, and cryptography is a mic microcosm of all of security, is that if you're gonna build a solution, you need to understand how things fall apart, how things get hacked to better understand. Um, and that's the, almost the antithesis of how other technologies are built. If you're gonna go you know, build a new, uh, new car, you wanna understand how cars work and how they go and uh, make improvements on it. Security, the best security professionals understand how cars break, how cars mm -hmm. get hacked, how cars, you know, as an example. And so it's that mindset that I think was one of the most key things I learned from applied cryptography is understanding how things fall apart before trying to figure out how to fix them. And then the other book that's actually been a really good guidepost for me um, as I've grown in my career has been uh, the Jim Collins, Good to Great. Uh, yeah, I, love I that was book. Uh, introduced to that early in my career. Um, my CEO, uh, Intel's Michael. in there, I think. Huh? Intel's in there. Isn't yes, Intel in there? You know, Andy Grove takes it, Good to Great. Yeah, yes. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> uh, so one of my early CEOs uh, introduced me to both uh, to Jim and to the book. and. Uh, he came in and gave a quick talk to our executive team and we all had to read the book. And at the time I'm like, why am I reading some nonfiction business book? I tell you, <laughs> it was game changer. Uh, understanding not just how I would want to build a business, but as I engage with customers, understanding what makes them tick. Because mm -hmm. the really good, you know, whether it's a good organization or as him in his terms, even one that's not um, uh, operating effectively, by understanding why you better understand the customer and what their needs are. And so it's really helped me both in how do I build companies, you know, about surrounding yourself with people smarter than yourself and uh, being right able to listen the to bus. them. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and then 
understanding what companies are in the business of doing so that mm -hmm. when you're looking to help them, you understand what makes them tick. And that, again, valuable information, whether you're in security or anything else, but it's been very helpful to me throughout my career. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I remember the the Intel chapter, or it might, might have been multiple chapters, but that was a, a massive transformation. Um, I, I actually recently read, uh, I think it was John Doerr's book, and uh, he was talking about the existential threat that Intel was facing early on from Motorola, mm -hmm. and how fast the the organization was able to rally the troops and and you know put out a kind of a response to that. Um, pretty pretty impressive company you worked for there. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. So, so those are some great recommendations. Um, in, ter in terms of the applied crypt crypt uh, cryptography, is this something that a somebody with a non like super technical background could get could could get through? Um, probably not as as easily because it it does go deep pretty quickly. But he uh, Bruce Schneier, who's the author of that one, has some other really good books um, that are uh, at the higher level. Uh, Secrets and Lies is probably a really good book to read from him. Um, that uh, he put out, and then he's got a new book that came out last year. I've got it. I've, I've got it on my shelf. I have to go look at the title. But yeah, Secrets and Lies is a really good one to understand uh, the dynamics of cybersecurity, um, and it's a less technical read uh, for for your layman. Awesome. And then on the uh, the fiction side, one recommendation. One recommendation. Good Omens. Good Omens. Good Omens. It's Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Uh, and when I try to explain to people why I like Neil Gaiman and really Terry Pratchett as well. It's a good intro book because it's it's a funny take on uh, a fantasy concept of you know funny take on the end of the world and so it's uh it's a really good fun read. Funny take on the end of the world, uh, yeah, <laughs> kind of a juxtaposition juxtaposition of ideas there, but uh, well I, I understand what you're saying. The uh, I, I actually just read a Stephen King book and I've never read I'm not I'm not into uh, horror movies or horror, horror books at all horror fiction uh, but he did a, a historical fiction kind of sci-fi book called 112263 um which was when Kennedy was assassinated and it has it relates to a time portal where a person can go back in time and and he tries to prevent the assassination and it's 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 amazing because he researched so much about the late 50s and early 60s and all these real events were interwoven into the story and I was like googling everything cuz I was like there's no way that happened <laughs> I'd never heard of that and it all it all happened man it was a very very cool book uh, it's about uh, 850 pages though so it might take you a while um hey Steve I've really enjoyed this conversation I like you so, hey, thank you so much for your time and um, wish you a great rest of 2023. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me today, Mark. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.